Hey everybody, welcome to Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I really want to thank you for listening. If you feel compelled to do so, make sure you subscribe, uh, leave a review, comment, share, whatever you feel like doing. Help me out trying to grow this podcast, trying to continuously deliver value. A couple of things before we get into the show, check out the links in the show notes to my CRA Academy, my CRC Academy, both of them doing very well as far as getting people jobs in the marketplace. Check those out. Also, if you need help getting studies for your site or anything else, or even launching a site, basically any help for your site, we have a low monthly fee consulting service where we have helped many clients become and continue to be successful site owners through our background efforts of business development and support staff. Text me 949-415-6256. Please check out the links in the show notes as well for the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. It's been selling really well, getting very well received by the community. Thank you guys so much for that. Also check out the YouTube member page. Join this channel to get perks. That's my YouTube uh, membership. It's 10 bucks a month. You get a monthly mastermind exclusively. It's a Zoom call every month with other YouTube members. Uh, You also get weekly videos exclusive to the YouTube members on how to use social media to improve your opportunities in life sciences. So check that out. Really means a lot to me. And thank you so much again for listening and enjoy the show. Yeah, so it'd be awesome, Joey. Like we have Joey. We have he's the CEO of Cytonics and he's gonna introduce himself. We're gonna have his link underneath this video. And if you're listening in the show notes, go ahead and give him a follow. Joey Bose, um, CEO of Cytonics. You do have a LinkedIn, right? I think that's where we connected. Yeah, yep. Okay, yeah, perfect. perfect. LinkedIn, yeah. See, LinkedIn is the tool, guys. Let me tell Guru Nation how I found you first. Because I think it's inter- I think it's exercise in how people can use LinkedIn effectively. So my PI, Dr. Smith at Yuma Clinical Trials, randomly, like at 5 a.m. on a Tuesday, sends me this this photo screenshot of this article he read about Joey's company, Cytonics. And he circled it with his like picture editing thing and said he wrote clinical trial question mark. And so he wanted me to find out more about this company, which is amazing when you have a PI that's that involved, by the way, and that interested. And it's actually Joey that speaks to your company. Like, it's kind of rare. He's very skeptical. My PI is like extremely skeptical about pharmaceuticals. He's a community clinician, but he, I mean, I've seen the way he talks to sales reps. He's like, yeah, yeah, you guys giving us poison. Um, I mean, he's kind of joking with them, but also serious. Mm -hmm. So for him to send me your company info in order for us to try to work with you guys says a lot. And he is a big, he's big into the peptide space. Like he, he studies that, that little niche. And it's interesting to get into that as well in this interview. Um, But anyways, he sends it to me. So I look up Cytonics, I see the website. And then I go to LinkedIn and and I just put Cytonics in there. And then you pop up, CEO. I said, okay, perfect. Who better than the CEO to contact? So I message you and 
within about an hour, you messaged me back and we were on a Zoom call the next day. It's that simple. Sometimes, guys, like LinkedIn is that simple and there's no need to spam. Like I just sent him a few sentences, basically the truth, like my PI alerted me to you guys. And so that's that's how we connected. And now we're on this podcast. So just a quick lesson on how to use LinkedIn effectively. Um, but Joey, thank you. And maybe we could start first with why is my physician so excited about what he read about you guys? Sure, sure. So, you know, one of the reasons um, that he might have found what we're doing a little more credible is the fact that, you know, we've already um, in, a, in, in a clinical setting shown that our core technology works, right? And what we're doing is really analogous to what Genentech and Eli Lilly did with recombinant insulin in the 80s, meaning that we're creating a recombinant modified form of a naturally occurring protein or peptide. In Eli Lilly's case, it was a peptide. In our case, it's an actual protein, three-dimensional structure. Um, and that we already know has some sort of uh, uh, endogenous function naturally that we can then leverage to be able to apply in other settings, right? So, so essentially what we've done is we've created a synthetic, a recombinant variant of the naturally occurring alpha-2 macroglobulin or A2M blood protein that in its natural state plays a role in uh, blood clotting as a protease inhibitor. Well, it turns out that if you can purify and selectively concentrate this A2M protein from the blood, it also has therapeutic function as a protease inhibitor against the major proteases that are upregulated in arthritic joints. And so what we're doing is we're, you know, we're in, in, in the same way that Eli Lilly did with creating the recombinant insulin, we've created a tweaked version in which we've uh, made some careful genetic modifications. Only 31 amino acids have changed out of a 720 kilodalton protein. So it's a, it, honestly, it's a very, very, very small percentage of the actual structures changed, but that's all that was needed to be able to change its affinity for certain proteases. And there are three major classes of proteases that are, that are responsible for cartilage degradation in arthritic joints. And so we were able to fine tune this protein to be able to increase its potency, its, its, its affinity, its binding coefficient against uh, these uh, specific proteases while maintaining broad spectrum uh, efficacy, uh, broad spectrum anti-protease activity, which is important because osteoarthritis, its, it's molecular etiology is not like uh, linear. It's not single factorial, it's multifactorial. So there are multiple uh, uh, proteases that become upregulated three major classes, but also some more general serine threening, threening proteases that, that still have uh, some underlying activity that are also uh, responsible for cartilage degradation. So the long and the short of it was that we needed to come up with a way to increase this molecule's potency against some specific proteases, but also maintain broad spectrum activity. And so that's what we did. And, you know, what we, you know, in a, in a pithy way, we, we captured the genius of nature, and we simply improved on nature's design. Nature already had built this molecule. We figured out a way to modify it to make it better and leverage it for a, to play a therapeutic role in our disease focus area. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I was going to ask, um, since this protein, or at least your investigational product, is is based on a naturally occurring protein in the body, this naturally occurring protein does not have any effect on on knee joints, right? Like, yeah. So that's the thing is that um, you know it's produced in the blood. It's, well, it's found in the blood. Uh, most of it's produced in the liver, 
but you don't really see it in high concentrations in the snowy fluid. I don't even know if you see it at all. It's a very large blood protein. So 720 kilodalton. So, so the chance of it passively diffusing into the synovium <clears throat> is very small. So joint is encapsulated by a thick membrane. I don't even know if it's, I, 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 I highly doubt that there's, that there's A2M within the joint, which is why when we were able to purify it out of a patient's own blood and selectively concentrate it and inject it into the joint, that's where we saw therapeutic function. That was, that concept was employed in our first generation technology, which is a medical device that was, that's been FDA approved. It's been in the market since 2015. And, you know, the clinical and commercial success of that device is a testament to A2M's power as a therapy for osteoarthritis. And it's what gives us, you know, the great confidence to move forward with our synthetic recombinant variant. This is what we're calling Site 108. It's an homage to the name of the company. That's what gives us confidence to move forward. And, and in our minds, it's that, that, that the development of Site 108 is significantly de-risked by the fact that we've been able to, you know, successfully purify, selectively concentrate, and, and, and inject directly into the joint, the naturally occurring H2M, and been able to see uh, that, that'll actually heal uh, or protect patients' joints against further cartilage degradation. We'll get back into cytonics because I'm curious about what's already approved and commercialized in your guys' portfolio. But how did you get involved in all this? Like, what's your background? And you're you're embarking on potentially doing more clinical trials now. And that's why we were talking off, off camera. Um, but how do you get thrown into this? You're from Wall Street initially, right? Um, no. So my background is actually in biomedical engineering. So I spent almost 10 years yeah, in academia um, as uh, working <clears throat> in the field of in the fields of systems biology and proteomics. So really heavily quantitative biomedical engineering um, at the University of Virginia and then at Johns Hopkins. And I was I was in a doctoral program um, and I, you know, I was studying one gene, PTPN22. It's a phosphatase. And I remember thinking, you know, what am I doing here? Like, this is so myopic. I don't really even understand, like, who's going to appreciate this or read this. And truth be told, I don't, I'm not trying to hate on academia, but listen, <laughs> vast majority of people, that, the overwhelming majority of publications in any field in academia, it doesn't matter across the board. This is agnostic to the, to the focus area. The number of people that read what you write are up with, under 10. There's under 10 people in the world that are reading your publications, unless you are a rock star that's publishing the science, nature. I published the number one proteomics journal in, in the world, molecular and cellular proteomics. 20 people might have read the paper, right? Wow. So that's how it is, right? And so there are some people that enjoy the process of just doing research for research's sake, and that's fantastic. I'm not that person. I need to see something real. That's why I left. And so I actually dropped out of this program. Luckily, I'd done enough research to publish with a master's, and I'm very grateful for the PI head of Hopkins. Great people over there. Um, they even paid for me to do the first year of med school. Like I owe a lot to that university. I owe a lot to the University of Virginia. They, they really uh, did really, really good things Cavaliers, for me. When I, when I was at Cavaliers. the University of Virginia, we had – sorry, what was that? The Cavaliers. My brother Cavaliers, uh, yeah. was an assistant basketball coach there. Good program. Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. 
Yeah, John Paul Jones Arena. That's a great, that's a great arena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so you know, all lots of those universities, they they really uh, did a fantastic job uh, educating me and giving me the opportunities to do the research. And even though I didn't appreciate it as much at the time, now that things have kind of gone full circle, I do. So after I left academia, um, you know, I was looking for something to do that's real, right? Something that has some you know real tangible impact in the world. And you know, I'd always been kind of interested in finance. I never really had the background though. But I had a family friend that was starting an investment bank in Boca Raton, Florida. And I was like, okay, you know, I was 22 at the time. I was like, all right, that sounds sexy. I have no idea what that even is. Uh, <laughs> but it sounds like something, something different, something different to do. And, you know, it should still be, you know, relatively quantitative. Um, and so I jumped ship and I moved from Baltimore. I packed whatever I could in a four-door sedan, which wasn't that much. Drove down to Boca Raton, Florida from Baltimore. Never been down here. Never, I'd never been to South Florida before in my life hmm. and um, set up shop. And I was like, man, this is that the, the most amount of culture shock I'd ever experienced. So I went from living pretty much in the ghetto of Baltimore to looking around. There's these 22 year olds driving Bentleys. And I'd never even <laughs> seen a Ferrari. I'd never seen a Ferrari in my life until I came down here. Wow. Now they're just everywhere. <laughs> it's just like, who are these people? How do they afford this shit? It's not real. Like, so I went from this extreme of just, Gritty, 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 <laughs> just so gritty to coming down here and just like this is a whole whole new world and so um you know on the, on the face of things you know that's how south florida kind of is right it's like there's a lot of glitz and glam and you look underneath and everything is just kind of like held together with gorilla tape right yep and i didn't know at the time but this company that i joined was pretty much just like that and so the guys that had formed this this investment bank it was pretty much what they that said set up was a a fixed income trading for me selling bonds uh, a lot of u.s uh, treasury debt um with this ancillary investment banking arm <clears throat> and the guys that had set this up were former cdo traders uh in the, the, the that were responsible in large way for the 2008 mortgage crisis so you know they went from making like five ten grand a day trading this paper to nothing and so mm-hmm. I didn't know that I was getting into bed with these maniacs. And so ended up, you know, I, I learned a lot. Truth be told, it was, you know, it wasn't a successful operation, but I learned a lot about finance. You took all the, you know, FINRA certifications, but more importantly, um, you know, I'd ingratiated myself in the community. And what I didn't know at the time was that South Florida is a really rich biotech hub. There's a lot of startup biotech down here. I did not know that at all. So the benefit coming down here was, was sort of ingratiating myself in, the, in, in this community, going to all the conferences, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how I met Guy Scuderi, the founder of Cytonics. When I eventually left the banking uh, behind me, um, you know, I had reached out and, and, and they were looking for someone new to kind of breathe a little bit of fire into the company because at the time, uh, this was about 2000, mid-2018, Cytonics had about 300K in the bank. They had this drug in an engineering grade, right? It wasn't even produced in GMP grade. They had, some, they had a published paper with some in vitro experiments showing that it can protect against cartilage degradation. There were some in vivo uh, small animal models. There was no large animal stuff done yet. So it was very much right at the cusp of the drug discovery and development in preclinical stage, right? Not even fully through preclinical. Well, let's let's wait. So this what's his name? Guy for... Uh... Guy Scuderi, yeah. Gaetano Scuderi, yeah. Scuderi. So how, how did he find you? Like, were you networking out there? Like... Um... 
trying to raise money or yeah so when i was working in banking yeah so so sorry i should have clarified that yeah so the you know the mandate of the investment banking you know for for you know a middle markets bank is you know we're trying to raise you know private equity for companies you know maybe worth 50 to 100 million dollars looking to raise 10 to 50 million 10 to 20 million something like that um and so it was during that time that i had actually met the former president of the company and we became uh, uh friends and, and and colleagues and so then when i was looking for a new position you know like i i i have you know young people from the university call me I, i'm on a list so people can talk to me i i, I talk to young people you know and from hopkins and uva probably four or five you know times a year and i tell them like listen like this shit's soul sucking. like mm -hmm. you, you know you, like investment banking is not what it was during the bond heyday of the 1980s you think wolf of wall street it's not like that okay the money's not there the, the the, the level of mental illness still is though. And so it's like, you know, like, so, so anyway, I got some, I have some really strong opinions on different things, but that's not really that relevant. But anyway, I left that behind me. It's like, get the fuck out of this. This is, oh, sorry. I shouldn't curse. This is too no, much. Yeah. We curse on this. Show. Okay. Um, this is too much, you know, just had to get out. And so ironically, <clears throat> somehow once I talked to a guy, and I don't even know if he realized this, but my background wasn't protein engineering. I spent, uh, you know, eight years, you know, making recombinant proteins, you know, editing them to give them different functions for research purposes in academia, right? For investigative purposes to design assays to, you know, measure this, that, and the other. Mm. Um, but what we're doing at Cytonics is the same thing, except engineering them to confer a therapeutic function. And I don't even know if he really understood that at the time, but what are the chances? Right. So left academia, moved into Wall Street, learned how to raise money, learned how to, you know, all that stuff that's important, right, to be able to run, run a biotech company. And then somehow came all the way back around to engineering proteins. <laughs> wow. And so, you know, talk to him and, you know, he's a very interesting guy. Um, so he's he's a he's a spine surgeon. Right. And he founded Cytonics in 2006 uh, after he got into a motorcycle accident, skinned his hands. And so he was like, well, what am I going to do? Um and we went over to Stanford, started doing translational research with a couple other uh, PhD, MD PhDs that are actually uh, some early shareholders, uh, stakeholders in Cytonics. Um, and that's when he discovered the therapeutic potential of A2M. That's when he first started developing the autologous device to pull the A2M out of the body. And then eventually in 2015, you know, we, we switched to this biopharmaceutical bent. Uh, we're actually engineering the A2M molecule ourselves. So, <clears throat> so yeah, so Guy, Guy was the original founder. And uh, he's he still uh, is is the chairman of the board. You know we've we've you know reorganized um, so that you know we have myself as the CEO, Louis Hanna, uh, who is the, the chief scientific officer. He has about thirty, a little over thirty years experience uh, in big pharma doing protein engineering. Um, so he's really you know critical, been the brains behind designing this process um, of, of upstream. Uh, production and downstream purification of this protein is very challenging due to the size of the molecule. And, you know, we think it, it's probably the largest recombinant protein that's been purified um, for, for, a, a, you know, drug in a drug development setting, you know, 720 kilodaltons. So, so it's technically not a peptide. It's a pro it's, it's a protein. protein. Yeah. I wonder why my PI mentioned peptides. I mean, he's into. I mean, people it, so. kind of. I mean, you know, people kind of group it all in the same thing. I mean, you know, the protein is just a three-dimensional arrangement of peptides. So yeah, yeah, interesting. So it's definitely patentable, which is kind of an issue with some it, peptides, right? Yeah, so it is right. So so we have twenty-two patents already. 
Um, and, you know, it covers the medical device technology, that first generation technology using autologous A2M, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that covers the composition of matter of, you know, what we're actually producing. We have A2M concentrate that's selectively purified. We're getting rid of other blood proteins, right? Selective concentration. And then the second generation technology, the recombinant variant, you know, we've patented, you can't patent the A2M molecule, right? It's a natural product, but we've patented the gene sequences that we've changed, but we did it in a very intelligent way. It's not actually, not actually patenting uh, the gene sequence itself. It's patenting the binding region on the protein that that sequence recognizes. Okay. And that's important because anybody that wants to create something that's substantially similar that targets those other proteases will now be infringing on our property. Right. So we've created a way to protect the targets and we know that those targets, you know, are relevant because we already know that they're the ones that are responsible for the cartilage damage. So this is for osteoarthritis, primarily, osteoarthritis, the knee, yeah. but it could work for the hip. It could work for. Yeah. So like, anything, any joint with articular cartilage. So yeah, hip, fingers, elbows, you know, uh, back. Um, we've done mm-hmm. all those with the autologous device, uh, which we call it the, the autologous protease inhibitor concentrate system. Right. How it's is it a device? I'm still a little bit confused. Like, uh, where's the device? For, uh... Yeah, so the device, we, that was commercialized in 2015, and it's predicated on platelet-rich plasma. Uh, it, it employs a proprietary filtration system to basically take a PRP formulation, get rid of all the uh, inflammatory mediators, cytokines, ah, okay. and growth factors, too. There's a lot of inflammatory stuff in PRP formulations. Based on the fact that A2M is so big, 720 kilodaltons, we used a high molecular weight filtration system to be able to pull the A2M out and get rid of everything else. And that we can then inject directly into the joint. We've been over 8,000 people have been treated and it it works very, very well for some people. Some people come in about, you know, one injection uh, a year. Um, Hoist Gracie, uh, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. So so Doc Scuderi is also a a black belt jiu-jitsu. And so he knows a lot of the uh, uh, guys down here. Oh, don't yeah, mess with South him. Florida's a mecca for, what's that? I said, don't mess with him in that case. <laughs> yeah, South Florida's a mecca for, for MMA. And so yeah. Boyce Gracie has been treated by us. I actually started training jiu-jitsu with him like five years ago. And then that's just become the rest of my life besides Cytonic. So it's funny how that happens. You know, it's like. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool culture down here. Um, and, uh, yeah, so Hoist Gracie's been treated. The Eagles football team's been treated, um, the, their defensive, the defensive side of their team. Um, really? Like yeah. on the knees or just any joints? I'm not uh, exactly sure which ones. Okay. Um, you know, to be honest with you, they're kind of secretive about it. We yeah. just knew that our distributor was going there and training okay. the doctors. That's all they would tell. So they're just using it off label wherever their doctors yeah, feel it's like all, it's Yeah, it's all, well, technically there is no on label because it's 510K, right? So uh, it's device. Yeah, yeah, it's predicated on PRP, uh, but it, it, for all intents and purposes, yeah, it's used off label everywhere. I mean, you see people sure. putting PRP in their face. No, I had it in my head, in my scalp. You had, had how that worked? Did it work? Did it inflame everything? I don't feel like it did work, but. I would do it. I had like two or three rounds. In your scalp. Yeah, for hair, hair regeneration. Did uh, it work? Uh, I don't feel no. like it did. No. Huh. No. Yeah. Who Who did that? One of my other PIs, actually, uh, in San Bernardino, California. He's actually a cool guy. I got to introduce you to him too. Sure. If you need multiple, you might want to try the APIC product. 
Yeah, no, seriously, he does. It. He actually does this in clinic a lot. Um, he does it for you know, on, on face for women, hair loss, um, knee pain. He actually would be a good, um, good contact for you too, just like Doctor Smith. Okay, yeah, yeah, happy to talk to him. You know, we we we've outlicensed the the exclusive manufacturing and distribution rights. Actually, two different entities. One in the human market. They're they're a large multinational. They're actually based in Canada. Uh, CareStream. Uh, uh, USA, they're, they're a big multinational manufacturer, distributor, medical devices, the human market, and then another in the veterinary market. So what we're finding is that it works very well, this autologous treatment, autologous A2M for horses, and which is really exciting. Um, and there are wow. a lot of, of veterinarians that are using them on both uh, what they call like performance horses as well as work horses. Um, and so that, that that's pretty exciting. And again, this is the autologous product, right? We're purifying it out of the animal or the person. For delivery right so it's it's very easy to use that right you don't have to get an, it doesn't have to you know be filed as an ind or anything like that um and but we expect you know once we have this uh the recombinant the site 108 a2m variant um you know ready to go uh uh it it, it could very well also it, a2m is highly conserved across mammalian species and so we think that, you know, we, when we've already done large animal model using this human base, you know, the gene, the, the gene that we've modified is a human gene. And in a canine model of, of osteoarthritis, you know, we didn't see any sort of, you know, deleterious, any sort of real adverse effect that was effect that was related to the drug itself. We saw some local swelling due to some of the uh, tween in the formulation buffer. Not a big deal. We can bring that down, but there was nothing related to the drug itself. And so that's a human protein in a, a canine model, right? And we didn't see anything. So it stands to reason, you know, the logic here is that, well, you know, you start putting in humans, it's probably going to be okay. And one other important thing to know is when we did those safety experiments, we actually dosed these animals subcutaneously at a 10x proposed dose. And that wasn't random. That was something the FDA actually asked us to do. You have to keep in mind, that when we actually dose this in humans, it'll be tenfold reduced in the knee, in the joint. So not even exposed to the systemic circulation yeah. nearly as much. Joints are relatively vascular in the membrane, encapsulated. And so it's like, you know, based upon the safety data we've got so far, you know, we feel very confident moving forward that, you know, we should be okay. And, you know, what really matters now is signs of, of efficacy disease modification, right? Because, you know, basically yeah. everything, the, the only available treatments for osteoarthritis right now are, are painkillers and corticosteroids and, and, and viscose supplementation where they'll put a little bit of viscous fluids, hyaluronic acid uh, into the joint as a, as a temporary cushion to mimic cartilage. But these are all palliative measures, right? They're Band-Aid solutions. And so, you know, our goal with, with, with our uh, Site 108 drug is it will actually be able to modify the, the, the pathogenesis of osteoarthritis by, by cutting off, you know, it, it, the, 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 the way it works, right, on a molecular level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm really excited about the uh, biotech industry as a whole. Unfortunately, I'm a, uh, and a lot of people are fearful, especially of these small cap biotechs, considering the reset potential uh recessionary environment we're heading into uh i had a ceo of another small cap biotech on basically saying you know what it's gonna be big problems here going forward and mm -hmm. you guys are in a unique in a unique position because you have something that's already commercialized you have revenue you guys are not a publicly traded company right 
as far no, as I'm no, aware. No, we're still private, yeah. Still private. What are your thoughts, somebody that has been in that space of uh, finance, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on the current environment and how your company will persevere through this and right. do a clinical research study, <laughs> which yeah. is not cheap. Not yeah, cheap. no, no, it's it's a complicated, complicated thing, right? So, so you know, when you think about these, when you think about you know the markets in general, you you, you first you should really break it down into two two sets of, of thinking. One is a greater macroeconomic view: what's going on in in the world and uh, and how are cent- in, in the world in the economy and how are central banks responding globally. And how is that going to inform investors' appetite for different asset classes? Biotech risk, but risky growth biotech stocks being a very niche part, okay? High risk, then, high reward. The second line of thinking is within that niche, what's going on? What are the catalysts in the industry? What are, what are the hot disease areas? What are people focused on? Okay, so in, in the general macroeconomic view of things, right, we, we, we find ourselves in a, in, a, in a high inflationary environment in which the Federal Reserve is committed to doing whatever possible in terms of raising interest rates to try and cut it down. Well, you raise interest rates, bond prices fall. Capital is going to flow out of equities in general, especially high risk growth stocks into more favorable assets, into the bond market, et cetera. That's not always true. You you know, sometimes you see prices fall, and we've been seeing this too with equities and bonds falling at the same time. But you have a diversion of capital away from high risk, you know, growth assets like like biotech. Crypto is the best indicator of risk appetite. Crypto is the ultimate risk asset. So when you saw in 2000 or so, 2009, yeah, right when the pandemic hit, all that fiscal stimulus. Or, or sorry, not fiscal stimulus, but monetary stimulus with, with the Federal Reserve slashing interest rates, injecting cash into the economy, and there was just all this liquidity. All that money went into crypto. That that basically acted as like a liquidity sponge, right? And it basically was an indication that, wow, there's so much money and there's so much risk tolerance. It's all flowing in. Well, that stopped now. So, you know, all the money went out, you know, crypto hammered, growth stocks hammered. And we, you know, we find ourselves in a in, in a situation where um, you know people are anticipating uh, a, a recession, right? And you know, you you can you can count you can count on there being a lot of uncertainty in the near term until you know the Federal Reserve has decided to stop hiking rates. And and everyone feels confident that they now have a better you know grasp on the situation and you know equities are are fully valued and there's not a lot of speculation about what's going to happen and so within the biotech sector in particular in in 2020 or so I, I think it really started in like 2018 you had a record number of of IPOs of biotech companies that weren't that didn't even have clinical data and sometimes they would go public in insane valuations of you know 60 million 80 million 100 million yeah. right yeah and well there's always going to be a come to jesus moment at that time the, the the market had this enormous appetite and they would buy anything and that was only uh made worse by what happened during covid and you know all of the uh uh the 
the, the, the heightened risk tolerance that was, that was uh, given by the, the Federal Reserve, just injecting money and slashing interest rates and making everyone think that, oh, wow, you know, everything's great. Everyone's buying crypto and it's, it's, uh, it's a massive bull market. No one even really understands why. Nobody cares, even though businesses are being destroyed, whatever. There's a come to Jesus moment. And that's where we find ourselves now, where that liquidity, uh, that that risk appetite for biotech stocks in that early stage is gone. You're not going to be able to go public at that early of a stage. And, and even if you are, it's not going to be for a valuation that you want. So what does that mean? That means a lot of these companies, these micro cap biotech stocks, um, you know, they're, they find themselves in a position where, you know, they favorably have access to the public markets. But if they are going to raise capital again, it, they're just going to dilute their companies into oblivion. Well, one of the benefits of staying private is that we are, you know, our valuation is not subject to the, you know, irrational, irrationality or variations of the public markets and their sentiment. And so we can go out and, and raise capital again at a, at, a, at a valuation that we think is, is more appropriate and that isn't going to dilute our shareholders down to nothing. Now, we also reserve the, you know, ability to at some point in the future actually go public and be able to raise that next tranche of capital, let's say for a phase two trial, you know, 15 to 20 million uh, tranche of capital. So, you know, we find ourselves in a position right now where, you know, we're going to be able to, uh, you know, fund a phase one study, you know, without having to subject ourselves, you know, to the scrutiny and, and the process of, of actually listing on a public exchange. Mm -hmm. um, and uh well the fact that you guys have revenue right and that you don't have a high burn rate right now because you're are you guys in clinical trials right now or? no we're not in clinical trials uh you know our, our burn rate is is mostly related to the manufacturing mm -hmm. um you know the 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 revenue that we get from the product is good um it's definitely not enough to support a a, a clinical trial program and so, you know, we are still, you know, using investor dollars, but it is unusual for, you know, a, a biotech company to actually, you know, have revenue. To me, most importantly, the, the commercial success of, of this autologous product is a testament to A2M as a therapeutic protein mm -hmm. and de-risk the further development of our synthetic version, the Site 108. Mm. Yeah, you know, my theory after talking to a few biotech um, startup CEOs, I'm I'm in Yuma, Arizona, but it's we're pretty close to San Diego, and that's actually where I I used to live, Orange County, San Diego. There's that's a huge biotech hub as well. So, you know, I'm talking to a lot of these small cap guys, and some of them actually got acquired or signed huge partnership deals with big pharma right before we started getting hints of the recession and. I feel like big pharma at the end of this, big pharma is going to get bigger because they're going to see small cap companies that are desperate and mm -hmm. say, Hey, you know what? Here's some money. <laughs> let's, let's have a partnership agreement or we're just going to acquire you outright and at valuations that they think are safe to them. And I don't know if that's good or bad thing. I mean, I, I love working with small biotechs. Um, the, I think the science is more pure i think that the intentions are usually more pure and 
the bigger you get, the messier it gets, the more political it gets. Um, and the, and the less fun, honestly, it is to work with those kind of companies. So that's one of the reasons why I was so excited about reaching out to you guys, even if it's not for another year or more, but just to plant those seeds, because I think this space thrives on small biotechs. Like mm -hmm. what would happen if there's no more small biotechs in this industry? Like what would Pfizer and J and J actually do? Yeah, I mean, you know, this 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 phenomenon of uh, big pharma being highly acquisitive to be able to stock their pipelines uh, with early stage drug assets is something that, you know, I think we really saw pick up in, in the 2010s. Um, and it's just simply a more viable, uh, uh, you know, financial option to acquire or license, you know, the development rights and do in-house research. So what would they do? Well, yeah, I think you're right. Like, you know, we're, we're already seeing, um, you know, uh, the, the second half of uh, 2022, the M&A picked up in, in the space. And I've written, I, I wrote something on LinkedIn you can check out about, about biotech buyouts and what, what we should see happen. Oh, Pfizer has already been, you know, because Pfizer has all that Paxlovid and, and uh, you know, uh, vaccine, COVID vaccine money. And they've already engaged in, in, in a couple deals. Um and uh, there are no more being announced every day. And so you know, the first half of 2022, everything slumped. 2019 was like the banner year for, for, for deal for deal making. Um, you know, you, usually you should expect in biopharma somewhere between, you know, 100 billion to maybe 250, 250 billion dollars worth of acquisitions every year. Um, I think 2019 was towards the higher end of that. Um, don't, don't quote me, but, but um, you know, you can look, look some of that up and some of the things that are written. Um, and, uh, you know, tw second half of 2022 is definitely picking up. And, uh, yeah, there are a lot of uh, 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 big pharmaceutical companies that are they're sitting on uh, very rich balance sheets and they're going to have the cash to spend. And <laughs> I feel like right now highs. All time highs. Off of all time highs. Yeah. Highs are all time high revenue. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're rich. They have, yeah, I think with even with just Paxlovid, I think they made something like 30 billion. I think they made thirty billion or so, something like something on the order of thirty billion mm -hmm. with Paxlovid alone during this during this crisis, um, and so um, yeah, yeah, you know we should see a lot of activity, which you know for small biotechs like us is is a good thing. What are these What are these big pharmaceutical companies waiting for? Well, they're waiting for valuations to come down even more, right? And so you know we'll see. You know they they are not necessarily better at timing the market environment than anyone else, and so. You know, maybe by the time they start, you know, uh, uh, making bids, things are already on the upslope. And so and they're less not... efficient, too. I think that's one of the things that keeps this industry going is the small cap biotech like you guys, for example. You know, you just said 15, 20 million for you guys for a phase two. You you can you can take that 15 million a lot further than a Pfizer can. You have way less fat. You know, I mean, Pfizer's got they have so many middle layers of management where that 15 mil gets eaten up and you guys, I assume don't, you yeah. know, the efficiency increases, the smaller, the, the, um, the market cap, I mm -hmm. think now, I don't know about the, the, the capabilities, but definitely the efficiency. And when you're a research site owner or a CRO, the CROs, all the CROs are coming off of, of record years as well, 2021. And, me at our site you know we're seeing we've never been busier in in clinical research we're just getting study offer after study offer so what do you predict like as a small cap ceo 
what do you predict is going to happen to the overall clinical research uh, ecosystem? Do you think CROs are going to continue to get bigger? Do you think the industry is going to remain busy despite the struggles? Well, you of know, some small to be clinic? honest with you, I, I think you know more about that than me. What I what I've been reading is that you know the CRO space has become this monster, right? Where they're eating a lot of the fees and and from talking, you know. My experience uh, in this, this would be the first clinical trial that I'll actually manage, right? And so, you know, all the information that I get really comes from my board. We have some really senior uh, uh, um, executives. I'll send you our book uh, afterwards. I'll get yeah, you. Yeah, no, I've been watching your lectures. I'm two hours in already on the, on the five on the five hour one. So oh, I'm you. learning a lot from 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 <laughs> your from your podcast, your your YouTube uh, video. So so it's very useful for me. But you know what? I, what I'm understanding is that you know 50 of the cost of the trial can go to, to management. Um, and, yeah. and you know, for for a small you know company that's that can make that can be make or break, right? Um, when when you're you know when you're raising capital on this this iterative in this iterative way where you know the next capital raise is predicated on the data that was acquired from the previous one right and so you know you're you're you're, you're running on this thin 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 line of ice right and so having to having to pay you know a, a couple million dollars to to a CRO. Uh, you know, for, for a phase one trial can, can certainly be make or break. And so what I'm understanding is that, uh, you know, just generally the more regulation you have, the more consultants have to come in, right? Mm -hmm. And then the, it creates jobs for everybody. And that's just the natural course of everything, not just and in this industry. It doesn't matter where. That's what that's why lawyers have jobs. Lawyers exactly. don't be there for most things. Yeah. Just because things are highly regulated. That's we it. created that's a whole new industry or sub industry there. So the problem really with the CROs and with there's only like five, five major ones. And then there's like a long tail of ones you've never heard of, like mine, for example. Um, but five or six major ones. And they know like they're busy. They know that they're going to get work regardless and they have preferred vendor agreements with big the, with the big pharma so when Pfizer approaches them when Janssen approaches them they actually sign long year contracts with them and they're given their A team of CRAs monitors data managers they're given like the A team when a company like yours come around they're given like the C or D team like the yeah. junior varsity team so it's real and they don't care because they don't expect you to be around so if they burn your bridge they don't honestly they don't care they're going to tell you differently but i'm telling you like how it is for the most part yeah no that that's been that that's what i've been told too and that's why for our preclinical <laughs> work we went with a small CRO we didn't go with like you know Charles Rivers or Lanza or, or one of much these better, big much entities. better cuz we talked better. to them i talked to them yeah. You know, yeah. And right, tell you that. You're getting the B team. Um, but yeah. And so, you know, <laughs> we know that, you know, partnering with them will double the cost of everything. And, you know, we're not necessarily going to uh, be a priority. And so, yeah, it's kind of sucks, but it's the it nature of where we're at. So it's going to be interesting to follow you guys. I feel like next time we do this, cause we should, we can do this for three hours, but next time, if you have time, we can go live and get a bunch of questions from LinkedIn, from YouTube. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm sure a lot of people will connect with you after this, but um, what is it about clinical research? Now you're in the planning mode, right? Like, where are you guys right now as far We're as We're preparing the IND for submission. Okay, okay. So after that, you're going to think of what, the phase one, phase two? You're not thinking phase two yet, right? You're gonna No, just phase one, one now. 
Yeah. Now we, it is going to be designed a little differently. Uh, it's not going to be in, uh, you know, healthy subjects. Uh, we want to try and develop it as, as open label because, you know, I think there's some ethical issues around giving people uh, injections in their knee. First of all, they're suffering patients, giving them saline injections in their knee, uh, you know, big knee. Like it's, you know, it's relatively invasive. It's not just like a little, you know, IV thing or something like that. Um, and then, you know, actually collecting some, some evidence that would suggest at least on uh, you know a, a biological let's say surrogate level of, of efficacy something that can show some signs of disease modification well how would we measure that? well we'd want to see a reduction in protease activity there's different ways to do that so you know we, we want to design something that even though we don't believe it's going to give us statistically significant results that there's some trend to look at because that's going to be important when we go back out to the market and say, hey, who wants to partner with us? Or who, who wants to, you know, help fund this or, you know, whatever. Like there needs to be something. And we understand that, you know, phase one data set, while good and necessary, is it makes things a little difficult. That was different two years ago. You could probably shop anything you wanted out. It all has to do with the market's appetite. This is not a pure scientific endeavor in any way, shape or form. It's a financial endeavor just as much as scientific. Yeah, it's you're unique because you started in academia, publishing, strong science background. Obviously, you get thrown into finance, and now you're thrown into clinical research. We have a lot of people in your situation who, you know, finance came last to them. They're mm -hmm. they're learning it now, <laughs> yeah. and they're learning it the hard way. I mean, I know several people like really well that are in this are in that situation right now as well they know clinical research great they don't necessarily need to know the science that well because they have they have people on the team that know it and now they have to learn the finance yeah well yeah i mean most of the role of you know biotech ceo or, or even colo is you know raising money so much mm -hmm. of it is just you know outward communication you know interfacing with the public and the market and stuff like that and so while knowing the science is definitely important um you know, honestly having, and, and, and that's why, you know, as an investor in a company, you want to see that as the company grows, that the chief medical officer, or, or, or let's say the PhD or MD that founded the company, they move away from the CEO role. They're the founder and board member or chairman. You pull somebody in with Wall Street experience to run a company. And so that's, a, it's a big red flag. If a company goes past a, an angel round or seed round and doesn't have somebody with Wall Street experience, that's the CEO. Wow. Interesting. It's a common mistake. Interesting. You know? I always thought that, but you're right. I always thought that having a science, science first CEO would be better, but you're saying maybe not. No, in the very beginning. Yeah. You know, you're selling the science to a very, very small group of people. Yeah. And then after that, you're not selling the science. You're selling an investment opportunity whose uh, value and probability of of return is predicated on good science, but it's also predicated on a number of other things that are non-science related. Mm. And you, you, you definitely want some, and, and, and it would help if they're, you know, like a biotech banker or something that, because, you know, obviously not somebody maybe that comes, comes from consumer products or something like that. You know, I'm not just saying anybody that touched wall street or was a, you know, traders, not yeah. like that. But somebody that, you know, maybe has M&A experience in the space, they work for a big investment bank, or even gotcha. a small investment bank, you know, like, like myself, but just kind of understands uh, the capital market side of things, what, how people are thinking, the, the way they talk, like you have to, you know, understand some of this lingo and stuff because, you know, the bankers will try it just, you know, 
run circles around and, you know, they, you know, even if they feel like they can sell your stock, like take you, you know, take you public on a small exchange, something like that, and, and, and sell your stock to a retail group, the chances of them being able to support your share price after that happens are almost zero. And so, you know, they'll collect a commission on the offering, they'll sell the stock, and then what'll happen? Well, you have your IPO, nice little bump in share price, and then boom, it'll just collapse and it'll yeah. stay, stay suppressed. It's what happens. I've seen it so many times there's two there's two ceos well we've had a few on but there's two in particular that i'd like to introduce you to travis mickle he's actually in florida from cam oh, okay. farm uh kmph he's the fa- he's the uh inventor of of um of vivans and oh. and he he sold that to shire in his first company and now he's the ceo of the new company kmph chem farm and they created a astaris for adhd got that approved still at the helm so he's an example of like science first but he learned how to navigate wall street yeah, and that yeah, guy, I, like definitely like I will introduce you he's in he's in florida somewhere in like um northern florida uh and then um brian cully from lineage cell therapeutics they just signed a huge deal with genentech i believe he had a he he called it like the amazon of uh gene gene therapy for for eye eye diseases um i'll introduce you to both of them those are examples that come to my head of like science first founders that managed to do it um which kind of makes it even more impressive after what you've just said <laughs> yeah it can be it can be difficult and i mean so a lot of this has to do with network right like if mm. you're well connected and you know people you're it doesn't matter where you come from right mm. i don't and i don't know these guys so but I, you're I science guys, first i have too. no idea who you're talking about so I have no idea where they came from. I can't speak there at all. But it, yeah, it, it, if you come, if you don't come from, uh, if you come from, if you came from academia with yeah. pure science, don't know anybody, don't know anybody in translational medicine accelerator, don't know anybody on Wall Street, don't, don't know anybody in industry. Just you're not doing nerd. this. Just a straight nerd. <laughs> you're just a straight nerd. You're not doing it. You have to yeah, pull in somebody yeah. that knows. So I don't know these guys with their experience. Fantastic for them. I'd love to talk to them. I'd love to, you know, that they're, yeah. they're doing cool stuff. Absolutely love to talk to them. I can't speak, can't speak to their experience. I would say you're science first too, right? Wouldn't you consider, because you came from academia first. Yeah, probably, yeah. Like, I would say, yeah, science, science first. But, you know, I had the benefit of learning uh, some of the Wall Street stuff first, mm-hmm. which I, was absolutely 100% necessary. So, you know, if, you know, fantastic for people that, that don't need that or, you know, uh, I don't I don't really understand how it's how it's done. Uh, and you not get ripped off by bankers or something like that, you know, <laughs> I think but, they you know, do. maybe I'm good people. You see, maybe you're just no, I think they actually do. And somehow they still like this. The the tech just works. I think that just kind of if you can survive and and time it right. Because they both did it in a great economy, right? Like yeah. that was very favorable, very forgiving. Um, I don't, not so sure if it would work in this decade. <laughs> yeah, so much of that has to do with timing. If, if, yeah. if there's a, if the market is hungry for this type of stuff, you know, yeah. and, and these are all risk assets, right? They're hungry for it. It's like you know, it's it's a great it's a great time. So that, and that's you know, my previous point is like you know, so much of this has to do with where do you fit in the greater macroeconomic cycle, and you know, this is arguably the worst time probably to be in biotech um in a long time (laughs) and it was ironically predicated by one of the best times 
just a couple of years ago, right? Yeah. And that's what happened, right? There's always going to be a come to Jesus moment. And if people act irrationally and fund companies at insanely high valuations, very low levels of development, really early stage, it's irrational. And there will always be a come to Jesus moment. And then what happens? People usually overcorrect. Now they're extremely risk averse and it makes things difficult. Um, but that's also one of the benefits of, you know, keeping your company private and going to uh, more sophisticated capital sources, whether that be venture capital or, you know, a very uh, focused family office, you know, that, that it, it's, you know, the private markets and public markets, you know, are not completely untethered, um, but there certainly is, uh, there certainly is a little bit of uh, discontinuity um, and they, you know, they don't move in sync with each other. And so, um, you know, we've been pretty successful with this equity crowdfunding. Um, we've done a few rounds of it and, you know, total since we've come to the company, we'll have raised about once this one closes about $8 million. So, wow. um, over that, over that. And so, you know, it, 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 it can be a, a, a viable funding option for companies that want to stay private. See, and that's a whole nother topic. This is why we have to go live. Eight, let's say eight million. We talked privately earlier. I think you can probably do it for five. Your your phase one, maybe two to five. But you're literally putting all your eggs in one basket, like one site, one CRO. So that I mean, that's got to be a very stressful decision when you come to that. And I'd like to kind of get into your thought process as we get closer to that. I mean. We don't have to cover that in this interview. My last question would be, do you think we're at the bottom of this biotech uh, bear market or do you think it's just beginning? Oh, yeah. So that's that's a question that everybody wants to know, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what. Um, back in, uh, I believe it was August, late July, early August, we saw a double bottom with the XBI index. And XBI is an index for just, it's a biotech ETF, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're all pre-revenue companies. Um and there's some certain market cap requirements for it too. So they're, they're not your Pfizer's, right? We're not looking at your Pfizer's and, and, and Johnson and Johnson's. And so we saw a double bottom and it looks like it's kind of rebounded. Let me see what it looks like. Let me see what it looks like over the last month here. So last month down 3.72%, the general market as quantified by the S&P down 7.92%. All right, over the last six months, the S&P was down 20% and the XBI was down 10.34%. So you can see it's outperforming, even though it's negative, it's outperforming the general market, okay? I think if we haven't seen a bottom, we're pretty much there. You're never gonna time the bottom perfectly, but we're pretty much there. I think for all intents and purposes, it's fine to treat this as the bottom and be like, okay, it might drop a little bit more. It's nothing to be that concerned about. Um, and you know, healthcare in general is is you know a leading a leading indicator. So once it starts moving uh, and and we start seeing some more positive growth, I think it'll it'll be a um, an indicator that the market has now more appetite for, for growth stocks and, and more risky asset classes. Which healthcare stocks would you recommend following for leading indicators? That I don't know. This is not financial yeah. advice, but um, yeah. would it be <laughs> it's like not financial advice whatsoever? Could we look at Pfizer and J &A, I mean, or would it be like uh, United Health or like? I don't know about any specific stocks. I mean, that's why, you know, looking at an index is, is, is good. Right. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, uh, a biotech, 
a good or so so you're talking about you know Pfizer and Johnson Johnson like that right so that would be a, a pharmaceutical index I have to look and and and, and see I, I I look at the XBI uh, just because it's a little bit more relevant to okay. you know, to, to biotechs and pre revenue companies okay yeah because there seem to be two schools of thought on this one is you know no one's denying we're we're in a recession but or at least at the beginning but some people are saying well we're close to the bottom others are saying we're nowhere near the bottom this will be a depression so i think that's <laughs> a, i think that's an overreaction really i mean you know when, when you're talking about things like recession and depression too you know we're talking about uh economies right and and while those while the state of the economy definitely impacts where capital is going to flow you know it's 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 possible like let's say that the fed uh increases interest rates tamps down inflation and then we enter a recessionary period and then they start injecting more liquidity into the economy and they slash interest rates again or something like that now there's a ton of capital to go around so technically you could still be in a you know in a recession and money can be flowing into the markets in kind of irrational ways look at covid i mean mm. entire cities were shut down entire you know municipalities were shut down i mean that's a depression right and even then you know, there was so the, the central banks had injected so much liquidity into uh, in, into the economy that flowed into the capital markets. They were able to see irrational things. You're so, right. You're right. Yeah. So it's not necessarily like tethered exactly. Everything's going to move in one two step. Um, so much of this, so much of this has to do like economic output matters, obviously, to how you value stocks, how much money there is to be able to move and flow into markets, flow into different asset classes. But there are situations where, you know, you can have enough liquidity available and the economy still look really shaky and be able to see some pretty irrational looking movements in the market. Joey, there's so much we can discuss. We have to go live. Um, it's great when I get people like you on the show that have passion and enthusiasm for this stuff. And you kind of bring on another layer to the science and we get to see behind the scenes, you know, the inner workings of a sure, really small yeah. cap. And hopefully we could follow your your career as the company gets bigger and, you know, has another commercialized product. And it would really be cool for uh, for the audience to follow. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, Joey's LinkedIn is underneath this video and also in the show notes if you're listening on the podcast. And we'll probably do a live stream soon. So get your questions ready and we'll probably set it up soon Joe. all right yeah dan thank you so much i might keep watching some of your youtube videos i'll send thank you the you book uh, i'll get your address thank you everybody like subscribe comment share bye-bye bye-bye